teacher knowledge, phonological awareness, and phonics. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I'm very grateful to be here with you today. We also have Patrick Wells, who's helping run things in the background and making sure everything is working as it should be. The school year is back in full force, and I hope you are well. I hope you are taking care of yourself, and I hope you have grand plans for how you will be responsive to your students this year in supporting their literacy needs. Before we get to the show, I do have a few items of business. The first item of business is I want to say is I want to say thank you to you, the listener of the show. I do very little to promote the show outside of just recording it and posting it, and yet the popularity of the show continues to grow. Episodes continue to get downloaded and streamed and listened to. So thank you for listening to the show and supporting it. I love doing this, and so I'm very pleased to find that other people are enjoying the show as well. And a big thanks to all of our guests. This is episode, what, 34, 35? So that means we've had several dozen guests on the show so far, and all of them have taken time out of their life to communicate important literacy research and findings and unpack the nuance and walk us through it with the aim of providing it in a public forum for uh, practitioners to be able to access for free. So uh, thanks to the guests who have been willing to uh, take time out of their schedules to let us know how we can become better teachers of literacy. All right, one more item of business. Just a reminder that you can donate to the show via Venmo and PayPal. That just helps keep the yearly maintenance costs of running a podcast running. If you're interested in donating via Venmo, it's on the business side of Venmo, even if it's not, though it's not a business, but at TeachLit. And then PayPal, you can go to teachingliteracypodcast.com, click on About Your Host, and there will be a secure link where you can donate. And a great big thanks to those that have donated. I'm very excited about today's episode. It is really a combination of two different topics that are very complementary and deserve to be considered in the same sphere. In the first part of the episode, we are discussing what research says on teacher knowledge and why it matters. And then the second chunk, we actually talk about foundational skills. We spend time talking about phonological awareness and phonics, how they are distinct and how they are related, why that consideration matters. My guests today are Dr. Shane Piasta and Dr. Alita Hudson. Dr. Shane Piasta is Professor of Reading and Literacy in Early and Middle Childhood in the Department of Teaching and Learning at The Ohio State University College of Education and Human Ecology. And in 2017, she was awarded the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers by President Obama. Dr. Alita Hudson is a clinical assistant professor in the College of Teaching, Learning, and Culture at Texas A&M University. She also is the recipient of the Timothy and Cynthia Shanahan Outstanding Dissertation Award for 2022, which now that's the third person we've had on the show that's won that award. Dr. Courtney Hatton from the previous episode won that award a few years back, and then Dr. John Z. Strong, who we've had on the show a pair of times also. Great conversation, a lot of nuance that we unpack so enjoy the show, and after, stick around for my take on what we talked about. Dr. Shane Piasta and Dr. Alita Hudson, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thank you. 
I'm very excited to be talking about teacher knowledge today and about phonological awareness and phonics. We're, we're discussing a pair of articles that you both published. Before we get into the article, I'm curious, what is your background, research interests? How did those become your research interests and current position and projects that are happening in your lives? Dr. Shane Piasta, let's start with you first. I've long had an interest in teaching early literacy. In fact, I had an opportunity to give a talk just a couple of years back at my undergrad institution where my undergraduate research project was about teachers' knowledge in Massachusetts to support language and literacy. So I grew up in a family where my mom was a teacher. She started out as a high school English teacher and then went to the extreme opposite end and was a preschool teacher and preschool director for years. And I was just fascinated by the learning that was happening all the time in her classroom where I was a very frequent visitor. But I was also equally fascinated with what was happening in terms of the professional development that she was undertaking. I would go to those workshops with her and, you know, seeing kind of all the things coming down the, the line in terms of publishers sending out these glossy brochures and things of that nature with the newest and best way to support children's development. And so I went to graduate school. I'm a developmental psychologist by training, but really focusing on how children learn to read and early literacy development. And as part of that, I think from the background that I had with my mom, really interested in how teachers, what they know about supporting that and how they go about supporting that and making sure that rather than just going off of whatever the newest fad is, we're really using research and evidence to help uh, make sure that we're doing our best to prepare children for literacy success. Fantastic. Dr. Hudson. So my background is I was a first and second grade, primarily classroom teacher after graduating from Texas A&M. And I worked in primarily low SES schools. So working with students who were at risk for reading disabilities and reading difficulties. And it really just opened my eyes to helping kids that struggle and helping kids that have, you know, different reading challenges. And I kept wanting to know more. How can I help them? I always could have thought of myself as a action researcher, I guess, is the, it's the term I didn't know it at the time. But in my classroom, you know, if I would read things in the reading teacher or other places online, and I would go try it on in my classroom to see if it would help my students. So I went back and I got my master's and I became a reading specialist, again, working with those kids who struggle and have challenges and need that extra intervention. And in that role, I was also a literacy coach. So I got to go into teachers' classrooms and see what they were doing, try to help them out. And what I noticed in that role was that the teachers who had this strong understanding of reading development and reading and children's progress and evidence-based practices, like Shane said, it didn't matter what the new fad was, what the new curriculum was, what the new, who the new principal was. They continued to do what they knew was best in their classrooms and their students were always successful versus these other teachers where I would go and maybe they didn't have that strong content knowledge base or understanding of reading development. And as the curriculum would change, as the fad would change, they would just be floundering, to be honest, from one program to the next. And, you know, it really ultimately affected their students too and their students' reading progress. So that's kind of what my impetus was for going back to get my PhD 
was that I really wanted to learn about teacher's knowledge. How do we build teacher's knowledge? And then how do we help teachers transfer that knowledge into the classroom? Because just having the content knowledge alone, as we all know, is not enough. You have to be able to apply that knowledge, which really got me interested. I started reading Shane's work and other work on teacher knowledge and just seeing that a lot of the times teachers don't really have this explicit understanding. And I love Emily Bink's Control's paper, The Peter Effect. You cannot give what you do not have. And so then I got interested in professional development and how can we build teachers' knowledge in an effective way? What can our pre-service teacher programs look like to fully prepare our teachers? And then always, I feel like I'm a teacher at heart. So I still have that it's all for the kids. So what can we do? What programs can we use? What interventions can we use? Can teachers use to help promote reading outcomes? And it's all just kind of driven by my own classroom experiences. Thank you. I love both of you providing your background because it bridges so nicely into the episode of what we're talking about today. Most of the episodes on the podcast, we're talking research on, on instructional practices or intervention practices. And so we spend a lot of time saying which practices has research shown effective, but uh, talking today a little bit more about how teacher knowledge fits into that piece of delivering good instruction. I think everyone would readily agree that, yeah, we, we want knowledgeable teachers who are skilled practitioners, who have content and pedagogical and a bit of pragmatic knowledge as well. But at the same time, that's a fuzzy concept, I think, for many people is to what degree does teacher knowledge matter and in what ways does it matter? So I'm very excited today to be doing both things, talking about teacher knowledge and then application of that, of how do we deliver some effective instruction for early literacy. So let's start out talking with teacher knowledge. Uh, the way that you frame it in the articles, and I love this framing, is that teaching, it's specialized knowledge, the same as an electrician or an emergency room doctor, that there's a specialized set of skills and knowledge associated with that. And you frame broadly the knowledge that a teacher needs to be successful as content knowledge and pedagogical knowledge. What are these types of knowledge and why do they matter? Right. So content knowledge is basically what you know, right? It's just understanding the facts. It's that explicit understanding of the concepts that you need to be able to teach something explicitly. I always tell my undergrad classes, if you asked me to go teach engineering, I couldn't do it. I know how to provide explicit instruction, but I don't have the content knowledge to be able to deliver that subject effectively. So the content knowledge is just what you know. Again, it goes back, like I said, the Peter effect cannot give what you do not have. So I might know the framework of explicit instruction. I might know that I need to model and practice. But if I don't understand what I'm teaching or the content that I'm teaching, I'm not going to be able to provide effective instruction. And then the pedagogical knowledge is just the, the teaching practices that we use, kind of that other side of the thing, the effective teaching practices. And what I think we need to focus on most is that pedagogical content knowledge. It's bringing content and pedagogy together. So being able to deliver effective reading instruction, you have both the effective teaching practices and you have the content knowledge to be able to deliver that. I read something not that long ago that I think really put it in clear terms for me. I told my students that ped pedagogical content knowledge, it's what makes reading teachers teachers rather than reading scientists, right? So teachers and 
reading scientists, we might have the same content knowledge. We might both understand the reading processes. But when you're going at it from science, you're looking at it through a different lens than a reading teacher who's looking, how do I affect this knowledge in practice? How do I affect this knowledge to my students to help them develop? I thought that was really helpful when I was thinking about the two. And I think it's really important. And I feel like a lot of the professional development that we provide, and I kind of go into this in the article, it focuses on just building teachers' content knowledge, giving them more information, giving them a better understanding. But what we found is content knowledge alone is not enough. I always say, you know, in, in college, you probably had a, a statistics professor, for example, who was very knowledgeable on their subject matter, an expert in their field, but they were lacking that pedagogy. And so maybe often, maybe speaking from personal experience, their students were left confused because they didn't bring the content and the pedagogy together to effectively deliver the information to their students. I love that framing of content pedagogical knowledge because it's a very flexible model. My master's degree is instructional technology learning sciences, and I became enamored with the TPAC model, which is the same thing, but then it layers on knowledge of technology on top of that. And so we can have these pockets of knowledge that perhaps in one area of literacy, I'm heavier in content knowledge, but a little bit lighter in the pedagogical knowledge. I'm not quite sure how to deliver it, but in another area, I might have, you know, good stuff in the pedagogical side, but the content side's a little bit hazy. So I appreciate the framework overview of content pedagogical knowledge combined being what really is going to make for effective instruction. Dr. Hudson, you led a systematic review, which for our listeners is just a review of all the literature that's been published, honing in specifically on teachers' knowledge of foundational literacy skills. And so you reviewed pre-service teachers, in-service teachers. What did those studies report about teacher knowledge prior to whatever intervention was done in the studies, sort of the baseline of what teacher knowledge was. was, And then the teacher knowledge was able to respond to the interventions that were aimed to help support teacher knowledge in the literature. Yeah. So what we found initially, it pretty much mirrors all the other studies out there in teacher's knowledge, is that generally teachers were really good with these kind of implicit skills, like syllable counting. Most teachers can count syllables relatively easily without really any difficulty. However, when it came to the more explicit skills, such as counting the number of phonemes or the number of sounds in a word, they really were challenged to do that. Same thing with morphology. There's really a big misunderstanding of morphology and what that is and how to use morphology in instruction. So initially it was pretty much mirroring the previous studies out there on teacher's knowledge. What we are primarily looking at in the systematic review is the kinds of professional development that teachers were getting or in-service teachers were getting and pre-service teachers, their training programs, what was happening in these training programs, and then the effect that had on their knowledge levels. And what we found overall was that teacher preparation programs can significantly increase teachers' knowledge in all of these areas, so phonological awareness, phonics, and morphology. And what we kind of gathered is these are very discrete teachable skills, right? So Counting phonemes, identifying morphemes, prefixes, suffixes. These are all things that we can easily provide teachers the content knowledge and have them practice. So we thought that maybe that's a reason why you can statistically significantly increase teachers' knowledge in these areas. However, one thing we did find is in some areas, such as phoneme counting and especially morphology, teachers still weren't at the mastery level. So they weren't performing 
perfectly. So they did increase their knowledge, but there is still more room to grow. The other thing we didn't find, though, that these studies didn't look at is what we call maintenance effects. So yes, this professional development helped them immediately after, but none of the studies or very few of the studies looked at, okay, six months down the road, a year down the road, do teachers still have this understanding, which I think is really important for making long-term change. So that's something that we need to look at in the future is how do we help teachers maintain this knowledge after the professional development? And what our systematic review primarily found, though, was that Yes, we can increase teachers' content knowledge through professional development, but what was lacking was helping teachers transfer that knowledge into the classroom. So again, going back to those pedagogical content skills. So we're building their knowledge. We're teaching them what a phoneme is, what a morpheme is. But a lot of the studies didn't look at how do they transfer, how do they take this knowledge and then apply it in the classrooms? And other studies that have been done have found that especially pre-service teachers it's hard for them to generalize, right? It's hard for them to take what they're learning in the classroom and then generalize it to this new instructional situation. So it was really interesting. The studies with pre-service teachers that had tutoring component attached to it. So they would learn something in the classroom. They would make a lesson plan or practice a lesson plan. Their course instructor would give them feedback on that lesson plan. And then they would go out into a school and provide tutoring to a child that was at risk for reading difficulties. And what our review showed was those studies that had that tutoring component where the students were able to go out and apply their knowledge had greater effects than just the ones that had the classroom instruction alone. So we say in the paper that as we're planning professional development, as we're planning teacher preparation programs, We really need to focus on both. We need to focus on building teachers' content knowledge because that's absolutely necessary, but it's not sufficient. We also need to focus on showing them how do we transfer this knowledge into effective classroom instruction and then give them opportunities to practice under expert guidance. So with someone who understands the science of reading, who understands good pedagogy, who has the content knowledge, that's able to give them feedback. And I don't know about the states that you guys are in, but our clinical teachers, that's not always the case. They get placed in a classroom with a teacher who may or may not have this expert knowledge in reading. And I I don't know the answer to that, but that's a problem that we should think about is how do we place our clinical teachers that have been learning all this science reading, all these good instruction throughout their years in, in teacher prep, when they go into a classroom, you know, how can we further support them? So it sounds like that we know that when we teach teachers content knowledge, that they're able to to pick that up and gain that. But it sounds like that there's a gap in the research of how does that knowledge hold up six months down the road, a year down the road? Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, providing support with the instructional side of things as well helps Mm -hmm. maintain that. What I appreciate in the article is you say something to the effect, if a teacher doesn't have explicit understanding of a skill or even aspect of literacy, they can't ever deliver that explicitly to their Mm -hmm. students. And what I thought was really interesting was that of the studies you reviewed, 20 studies overall, only five of those studies connected the student learning to student outcomes. And so I guess for the listeners, that would mean that 15 of the studies just studied how teacher knowledge changed for whatever the intervention was. But then five of those studies also measured 
what the effect was on student learning. So I was surprised that it was that small of a number. But um, overall, how did changes in teacher knowledge influence student learning outcomes? Yeah, I was surprised too, actually, when I undertook the study. Because in my mind, students are the ultimate goal. Students are why we're here. But yeah, only five looked at students' outcomes after increasing teachers' knowledge. And we found there's preliminary. We like to call it preliminary because there are only five studies. So I don't think it's conclusive. But there is this preliminary evidence that improving teachers' knowledge also improves student outcomes. And we want to be very specific at word reading outcomes. Because that was another surprising fact to me is that none of the studies really looked at comprehension. So it was all, we're increasing teachers' knowledge of these kind of decoding skills, phonological awareness, phonics, morphology, and then they really only assessed students' word reading, so decoding. And what we found was that, yes, if you help teachers increase their knowledge, then yes, students do tend to increase their word reading outcomes. What I thought was really interesting, that's kind of going back to that support piece, it was um, the Brunel, I hope I'm saying that right, Brunel article, where they looked at in-service teachers. At the beginning of the study, all of the teachers received this two days of professional development, kind of standard professional development that you'd see in a school. But then half of their sample then got monthly coaching. So they had monthly follow-up meetings. They had in-class support to, to see what they were doing. And those students of the teachers who had that support after that initial professional development had greater gains in their word reading than the teachers who just had the initial two days professional development before the school year started. So again, I think that really speaks to ongoing support, specialized support in the classroom, helping teachers apply their knowledge. And then the studies that looked at pre-service teachers they did find, so I think it was Spear Swirling and the Tiffany Peltier study, they did find that there was this correlation between teachers' growth in their knowledge and students' growth on their word reading outcomes. They attributed it to their pre-service teachers basically as they gain knowledge, they're able to provide better examples to their students. They're able to provide better feedback in the moment when their student makes an error because now they have this content knowledge built up that they're able to give more in-the-moment teaching. I think that aspect of knowledge speaks to, you know, expertise. A mm-hmm. fan of, of Kay Anders Erickson and, and his research on expertise. But one of the main differences between a novice and an expert is that an expert can use their knowledge more fluidly, more flexibly. And we know that effective teachers are very responsive in the moment. And at times they don't even realize that they're being responsive to student needs, but a a novice wouldn't be able to respond in the same way. And so, you know, sustaining support over time to develop that expertise does really matter because we do want expert teachers. Dr. Mm -hmm. Piazza, I know you've done work in the area of teacher content, pedagogical knowledge. What would you like to add to this conversation? So I think that this is an area where obviously we need to continue our work. I also want to acknowledge that this is hard work to do, right? When we think about, oh, there are only five studies that tried to make this connection all the way from providing professional development or teacher preparation programs to measuring teacher knowledge all the way down to student outcomes, there's a lot involved in doing that type of research, both on the participants' part as well as on the researchers' part. And 
The other thing that I'd like to add on that is that when we think about, Lita did a great job talking about teachers' content knowledge and how really that is important, but alone insufficient for seeing the boosts we'd like to see on children's literacy outcomes. There's kind of a chain of things that must be happening there in the middle. And that's still a bit of a black box in terms of understanding how content knowledge in particular might be affecting children's learning. And the key there really does seem to be this idea of pedagogical content knowledge. But we haven't unlocked that box yet. We know some of the factors, the you know explicit instruction, the opportunities for feedback, the responsivity of teachers to children in the moment, but we haven't been able to really understand that as fully as I think we would like to in order to make some of those direct links to children's learning. Broadly, you know, part of this, I think, is a limitation of the way that we conduct studies. If you're using a quasi-experimental type study, you want to be very careful about the variables that you're introducing into the equation. And so measuring student outcomes and teacher outcomes is introducing a lot of noise. That can be tricky to measure. We're starting to have different levels, uh, hierarchies of where we're trying to measure things. And that starts to get, you know, messy with statistics pretty, pretty quick. But, you know, clearly it can be done and there's more work to do. And I think if I were to broadly define some differences between the movement of, you know, like Nickleby and the NRP and our current science of reading movement or whatever we want to call it now, but the movement now does seem to be much more concerned around teacher knowledge, whereas previous movements were more centered just around instruction. So I do think there's more of an acknowledgement that teacher knowledge does matter as part of the equation. Let's shift gears a little bit and, and let's talk about some content and pedagogical knowledge to uh, support all of our understanding of effective practices. Let's talk for a minute just about phonological awareness and phonics, just a broad overview. In your other article, you're noting that they're distinct, but they're also interconnected. Will you expand on that and just explain the distinctness, but where there's also overlap? So I think that phonological awareness and phonics are terms that are sometimes confused um, because of the ways that they do overlap, but are also distinct. So when we're talking about phonological awareness, we're talking about your ability to hear and manipulate sounds. And phonological awareness, we're generally talking about an umbrella term where we're referring to all different sound units in the English language. So syllables, individual phonemes, um, all different levels of units. But really the key there is it's all about the sound. Phonics is really an instructional method that is helping children to learn how those sounds are then linked to orthography or linked to the written symbols that can represent those sounds. It's a method of instruction and it does also have that very key component of dealing with the phonology of the English language, but it's also about how that specifically links up to how we write and spell words. So when we think about kind of how this relates back to knowledge, both require that very specialized content knowledge about how the sound system of English works. But then there's more added to that where the phonics piece is really crossing over also into the pedagogical knowledge and understanding how we would go about teaching children to link those to the ways that words are spelled. 
I think that's a really important distinction that connects really well back into the content pedagogical knowledge because phonological awareness, it is a skill of the student, but phonics is an instructional approach. And there is overlap with those. And sometimes we like our things to be in distinct categories, you know, that this is a silo of this and this, but there's overlap with all areas of literacy that sometimes when we're doing phonics instruction really effectively, is it phonics or is it also supporting fluency? Or uh, if we're doing some really effective close reading routines, is that comprehension, but it's also repeated reading. So is it also supporting fluency? And so I think being able to understand the similar or the overlap or the interconnectedness, but also being understand the distinctness is really important because that helps shape and frame um, our instruction and the way that we're responsive to students in their instruction. Can you just elaborate a little bit, Dr. Piazza? Why does understanding that matter? It matters because we know that phonological awareness and specifically phonemic awareness is really one of those key foundational skills that is helping children to achieve skilled reading. So this is coming out of decades of work originally at Haskins Lab, for example, where they were really able to isolate this ability to attend to sounds and hear the distinct sounds in words. When I'm saying sounds right now, I'm meaning the individual phonemes, the smallest unit of sound that's distinguishable in English. That then is what's laying the foundation for children to kind of understand the alphabetic principle, this idea that in an alphabetic language such as English, we represent those sounds in our writing or in print through the use of letters or graphemes. And so you first really have to understand that we can take a word and break it down into its constituent sounds before you're able to really make use of the utility of an alphabetic language like English and be able to map those individual sounds to the letters that might represent them um, if you're spelling and, of course, the reverse, looking at letters and being able to map those to sounds as an initial piece of being able to decode and read words. Absolutely. That framing of it very much matters. I also appreciate in the article that you frame phonological awareness and phonics through the lens of language and saying these are both aspects of language. And there's other aspects of language, obviously, as well. But I really appreciated connecting it back to language. Why does that understanding of phonological awareness and phonics instruction as aspects of language matter for teachers' knowledge and instruction? I think this is an important overall framing for all of us to understand. Really, the function of being able to be literate is to translate either from written text to spoken oral language or vice versa. So we all have oral language, and that is what we're trying to communicate, even if it's in written form. So like I said, both phonological awareness and phonics are drawing on one of the main systems of oral language, which is phonology. And then, of course, as we get into phonics and some more complex understandings, um, we're also drawing on morphology and linking that to a system of written language, which is orthography. When we think about what we are asking children to do when we're asking them to use their phonological awareness to build into understanding how letter sound connections and patterns of orthography can be used to unlock words, what we're really helping them do is map the print to speech. We're 
actually helping them connect all of these different aspects of the language system and, of course, the written language system of orthography in order to access meaning. And to me, I mean, that's really the key of what we're trying to do here. We're trying to get at that system of semantics. So the understanding of the meaning, not only of individual words that you've now decoded, but also that broader meaning that comes from understanding at kind of a discourse level, you know, what is this passage about? What is this book about? Am I understanding that? And that's really, really drawing on our language systems. I really appreciate that term mapping. And I'm glad that that's a term that I hear being used very commonly around uh, thinking about foundational literacy. In the article regarding mapping, you're talking about how effective phonological awareness instruction is guiding children towards phonemic awareness. And then that is guiding or linking students to graphemes or representing those sounds with orthography or with printed letters. So talking a little bit now more about what instruction looks like, what practices can help teachers be effective instructors of phonological awareness to support their students' phonological awareness? So I think that's a really good question. And what I want to start off by saying is that we definitely have some research-based practices that we know can be effective in supporting children's phonological awareness development. But I also want to caution us that there's still a lot we don't know on this topic. Um, so I really find this idea of kind of research-based and research-tested to be helpful to me as they think about what constitutes an evidence-based practice. So to me, research-based means it aligns with what we know about the reading development process. It aligns with what we have in research, suggesting about generally effective practices. What we have less of often are research-tested practices, which means that this exact method of supporting phonological awareness has been tested in a rigorous study. So I just I want to start off with that caution because sometimes I think that we think we might know more than we do. We do know that supporting phonological awareness in ways that push kids to that level of phonemic awareness. So for younger kids, paying attention maybe to the initial sounds or initial phonemes and words or the ending phonemes and words. And for older children, really asking them to work directly at the phonemic level, we know um, that that is extremely important. We know that incorporating things like articulatory gestures, so this idea that individual phonemes, what makes them distinct is our mouth, our tongue position, whether or not our vocal cords are vibrating. The way that those are physically pronounced is what helps us distinguish among the different phonemes. And so there is evidence that Providing phonological or phonemic, specifically phonemic awareness instruction that incorporates having children attend to how they are actually forming the sounds is more effective um, than phonemic awareness instruction that might not be incorporating those types of practices. Some other research tested practices would be the use of sound boxes or other manipulatives to help children have concrete representations of the sounds when you're asking them to do phonological or phonemic awareness tasks. And then some research-based practices 
when we think about explicit instruction, really thinking about breaking that down and moving from more simple to more complex tasks. So starting with things like initial sounds, moving to final sounds, and then coming to medial sounds, that mirrors what we know in terms of the level of challenge for children about working with different phonological units. And similarly, the idea of working with continuant sounds, so sounds that you can hold, so like a sound, working with those initially and then moving to working with, you know, stop sounds like which can't be held as long, which makes it a little bit more challenging to blend, for example, if you're asking children to blend those sounds. From meta-analyses, we also have some additional research-based practices in terms of, you know, understanding that more is not always better when it comes to supporting phonological awareness. So really thinking about this being something that you teach over these brief episodes and that you can do that in fun and engaging ways. This doesn't have to be kind of a rote skill and drill type of task. I think also what's really important when we think about helping teachers be effective phonological awareness instructors is helping them back to the content knowledge, helping them be able to not only themselves have a good sense of phonological and phonemic awareness so that they are able to identify what those sound units are within words, but also helping them to pronounce and articulate those individual phonemes accurately so that they are pronouncing them in a way that is then understandable and easy for children to work with. Thank you. I appreciate that distinction overall between research tested and research based, because a lot of times those can get conflated. And that's that's an important part of the content knowledge is knowing where the line between those are and how that might influence uh, instruction. Dr. Hudson, what did you want to add on phonological awareness? Yeah, I just think, and we point this out in the article, I mean, everything Shane said was absolutely true. One thing that we need to realize, though, is that, and I think it's a big misconception among teachers, is that children don't necessarily have to master one level of phonological awareness before beginning instruction on the next. We often show, you know, there is this continuum of phonological awareness skills moving from larger sound units to smaller sound units, but it doesn't mean that we have to go through a stair-step process where children have to master rhyming before moving on to working with syllables and they have to master syllables. That's absolutely not the case. We can work on these things with the end goal of getting them to that phoneme level as quickly as possible because we know that phoneme level, that phonemic awareness specifically, as, as Dr. Piazza said, is the most important is the most connected to later reading and spelling. So it's not that we shouldn't do these larger sound units, especially if the child is having difficulties, you know, breaking down the phoneme. We can scaffold it starting with syllables or onsets, rhymes, things like that. But I think that's a really important distinction is that they don't have to master it before, before beginning work on at the phoneme level. The other thing I was just going to say is that, you know, if teachers kind of don't know where to start, are looking for, okay, what is a research-based practice? And I know this is something I use in my undergraduate classes that I teach, the What Works Clearinghouse Practice Guide, the Foundational Skills Practice Guide for K-3. to It's very teacher-friendly, very user-friendly, and it, it kind of breaks down these practices that have been tested, that are proven to work very easily step-by-step for teachers as a starting place. And then what I also love about it is it also has, at the end, roadblocks of, hey, these are some challenges that you might face. 
And here's how you might overcome that challenge. So I think it's just a really good place that teachers are looking to start. What is a research base? What is a research test of practice? It's a really good place to kind of start. Yeah. If I can just add to that, I also think that that concept is really important because sometimes we find different things, especially with meta-analyses. I know that Rice just put out a meta-analysis that found things that are a little bit different in terms of effective instructional practices for phonological awareness than we had seen in prior meta-analyses. And so understanding that a lot of what we're doing It is certainly research-based. It aligns with what we know about how reading develops and can be supported, but also realizing that not each and every practice has necessarily been research-tested that also can kind of help us understand why we might see some differences in findings and help us realize that, yes, we do want to do these things that are research-based, but we also know that the science is going to evolve and we're going to come to a place where we have better and better understandings of how to best support these skills for kids. Yeah, I think that's a great point because I saw that meta-analysis come through on phonological awareness and I haven't gotten to reading it yet, but, you know, the work is ongoing where we get more clear and explicit understanding of what works and why it works the way it does. Maybe just to linger another second on phonological awareness, but there seems to be this conversation happening around phonological awareness and some folks adamant that there is an oral only aspect to it and other folks saying that it has to be connected with print always. I think in the article you did a nice job of sidestepping that, whether intentionally or unintentionally, but saying that, you know, the goal is to move towards print, that sort of this gradient of we might begin with oral only, but then over time we're moving to print as students are ready and capable to receive that. Is that an accurate reading of what you wrote and what would you weigh in on that oral only print only phonological conversation? Yeah, it's an accurate interpretation. And I think it was Louisa Motes that said, and I love how she put it, is that phonemes are the parking spot for graphy. And so I think we can, especially in our preschool, younger grades, we can do phoneme awareness with manipulatives. And then as they learn those letters, letter sounds, then we can, with those sound boxes, bring in those letters and fill in those parking spots. And this is actually one of the areas where the new Rice meta-analysis differs from previous work or could be interpreted to differ from previous work in that Rice and colleagues, and this is the same as the National Early Literacy Panel, when they looked across studies, they did not see necessarily a benefit of integrating phonemic awareness instruction or phonological awareness instruction with letter instruction, which is opposite of what the interpretation of the National Reading Panel report is. However, I think there are some nuances in this. So the National Reading Panel report, um, that body of literature, again, we have to remember we are comparing across studies, not necessarily a study that did a version of phonemic awareness instruction with letter instruction and a condition also in that same study that did not add the letter component, right? So we're looking across studies and that is a really, really great method of deriving uh, effective practices, but it also does have its downsides in that there could be differences between studies that could affect results. I think another nuance of this is that 
the way that some of those studies were using letters were not necessarily teaching grapheme phoneme correspondences, letter sound correspondences. Sometimes those letters were simply really being used as markers or manipulatives or placeholders. And so it's not necessarily clear that it's the letter instruction piece of that, as opposed to having those concrete representations to link to sounds that was leading to a benefit. And then, of course, the other thing I would point out on the RICE meta-analysis is that that was specifically looking at phonological awareness outcomes, right? So sometimes things that might be effective practices for one skill or maybe doesn't show a difference for one skill might show a difference when we're talking about other skills like reading and spelling, which, of course, would be kind of the down the line goal of that instruction. So I think there's a lot of nuance here, but it's definitely something that has been a controversy. And, you know, Dr. Hudson and I, the way that we approached it in the article was really emphasizing that we need to get to the point where we are linking these phonemes with their letters, right? Because phonemic awareness is a step on the way to learning other skills that lead to skilled reading. But we don't actually have enough evidence right now to say always do it with letters or never do it with letters. I think it's if we can keep that end goal in mind that we do want kids working towards being able to associate these with letters, then that's a helpful way of us approaching instruction. Thanks for unpacking some of that nuance because I appreciate the gradient or that there's a developmental aspect here of, you know, it's not going to be either or, but it's going to be both and over time as students are progressing in their reading skill. So thanks for that framing of it. Let's shift gears and we can talk for a few minutes about phonics. Our goal is that we're trying to teach the patterns and regularities of English orthography. But overall, what is our ultimate goal in teaching these common patterns? Why do we care about doing that effectively so much? So to me, our ultimate goal in all of this is to give children the skills they need to be able to read words in a generative manner. And what I mean by that, and we talk about this a little bit in the paper, is that the idea of being able to use phonics, being able to use letter sound or grapheme phoneme correspondences, being able to notice and utilize the patterns in the English orthography is so that children can come across a word that they have never read before and be able to decode that such that they are able to pronounce that word and thereby map that potentially to a word that's already in their oral vocabulary so that they're able to understand what that word is and how that fits into the overall meaning of whatever it is that they're reading. So really, it's about being generative and getting kids to the point where they're able to use most of their cognitive resources to devote to understanding the meaning because they have these tools to be able to recognize the words pretty fluently, including those words that they might never have read before. I appreciate that talk about generalizing being the end goal of phonics instruction, because I feel there's a lot of conversation on that recently as well. I've seen some studies 
come out recently on like set for variability where being able to be flexible with the word and letter patterns is something that helps readers become really efficient. And as they become really efficient, they have more cognitive resources to devote to making meaning. And so attached with that, I think the most often thing I hear around phonics instruction is that it has to be, uh, you know, explicit and systematic. What's your take on what explicit and systematic means? And what does the application of that look like within the classroom? Yeah, so explicit and systematic means that it's clear, it's unambiguous, that the teacher is, you know, modeling the skills and thinking aloud first before asking the students to do the task or to do the skill. We're not asking the students to guess. We're providing them with the answers and the tools that they need and the knowledge that they need to be successful. And then moving into this guided practice where the teacher models, we give them the information, and then we support them. We let them practice in front of us. And this is where we're talking about that feedback that in the moment, you know, where we're able to use our content knowledge fluently comes into place. So students are able to practice the task. We're sitting there watching them, giving them feedback, correcting errors in the moment because we don't want students practicing something incorrectly because that's what's going to get stuck in their head before we ever ask them to do it on their own or to try it out on their own. That by the time they get to doing it on their own, they feel successful. They know exactly what they're supposed to be doing and they have the tools and they feel confident. They should feel confident in trying it out on their own. Then systematically just means that, like Shane said earlier, is we start with these easier skills and then we build on those and that we show students how everything is connected. So again, talking about the connection between phonemic awareness and phonics instruction, this is where we show them, hey, we were breaking apart these words with these manipulatives, but now we know these letter sounds. So let's do it now with our letter sounds because we can do it. So it's putting it all together and that there's a clear scope and sequence that we don't just choose what letter patterns we're going to teach that day based on what book we're reading, but that we have this clear scope and sequence that we follow, again, that builds on each other, that starts with easier, more high-frequency letter correspondences, letter patterns, and moves to the more different difficult ones or the less frequent ones that students won't encounter as often. So it's not by chance. It's not, you know, what pops up that day. It's really this clear outline of where we're going and what skills children need to be successful. And then I think the application piece comes in going back to language. We know reading, writing, speaking are so interconnected and we need to find ways that students can be applying their new knowledge into reading, writing, and speaking. So after we teach a letter sound or a letter pattern, we need to use decodable text that has that letter pattern recently in it that students can then be practicing decoding in real text that letter pattern. And then same with writing. We need to give them you know, spelling or writing tasks where they're then spelling and using that letter pattern in their writing. And really connecting it and making those connections in their brain and their muscles in their brain stronger and stronger with this letter pattern. But this isn't to say that decodable text is the only text we should be using. Obviously, that's not the case. But if our end goal is phonics instruction, and that's what our, you know, we want students to learn these letter patterns, then decodable text where they have opportunities to see those specific targeted letter patterns over and over and practice reading them, I think that is how we can apply it. But again, there's still lots of like 
like everything else in reading, there's still lots of questions that need to be answered. I appreciate that approach of we're being intentional. We're being very clear. There's a, a clear sequence. We're teaching things in the order we are as, as generally going from more simple to more complex, but at the same time, also being responsive to what our students are showing us. And if, if they're chugging and they're accelerating, then we accelerate. And if they need more support, we're providing that support. Um, mm -hmm. So question for you both, how can we support phonological awareness and deliver effective phonics instruction for students who are linguistically diverse? I think that's a really, really important aspect of this that we, I'm glad we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I think the number one thing going back to this idea of content knowledge is making sure that we are all aware of language variation, including how that might affect phonological differences across languages, across different varieties of language, including different varieties of English. And how that then might show up in the ways that children read and spell words. That's not to say that every teacher is going to become an expert in all of the languages that are being spoken by children in their classrooms. But I do think it is on us to be aware of the key language differences and how that could affect instruction, because that's then going to play into our very intentional selection of the words that we're using for phonological awareness and phonics instruction, for example. We often go into instruction using the assumption that students are speaking what's called standardized or general American English. And that's not actually the case for most students in, in classrooms. And so you might have a student, and this is an example of a regional variation in language, where the word that I would say pen, P-E-N, sounds more like pin, P-I-N. And that has ramifications. Think about if you're doing a rhyming task right? And you're asking children to come up with rhymes for a word that you pronounce pen, but they are pronouncing differently from you. So I think the real starting point for this is having that awareness and then using what we do know about language variation in order to put that lens on the instructional materials that we're selecting and also the examples and responses that we have to children when we're asking them to engage in these tasks. Yeah, I completely agree. I saw Dr. Elsa Cardenas-Hagan do a presentation a couple of years ago, and she really kind of made it very clear what this means. She said, for example, in Spanish, the J sound that the J-R-J in English makes doesn't exist in Spanish. So when we're choosing words to use for phonological or phonemic awareness instruction, we want to choose words that might start with that unknown sound for them. So like jam, jet, jog, jig, to really give them that extra practice with this letter and this letter sound that doesn't exist in their native language. And we can do those same type of phonological awareness tasks, but just really be intentional about the letter choices that might be more difficult for students where that don't have it, you know, a direct comparison to English. Also, I loved how she talked about when we're doing our phonological awareness tasks, we want to incorporate some vocabulary in there. And it goes back, Jake, like you were saying, everything kind of overlaps at some point, right? 
talking about during phonological awareness, oh yes, this is the word jog. Jog means to run. Just simple things like that that are going to help support linguistically diverse students. I appreciate that framing of linguistically diverse as meaning, you know, regional variations in dialect all the way to the student's first language is not English. And there's a huge gradient there. We have a, in Utah, a, a kindergarten exit profile that we do from the state and students are supposed to write about a tree. And so we see lots of CH spellings for tree because, you know, yeah. that's an, an Intermountain West kind of a dialectic variation of it. Our previous episode, we had Dr. Courtney Hatton and Dr. Sarah Lupo talking about knowledge, and we were talking more about comprehension instruction, but, you know, they framed it as that students have knowledge, and that's an asset that they're actually bringing to them. Perhaps we haven't viewed it that way as an asset, but in their research in the comprehension world, they've seen effective teachers that sort of sidestep, sidestep, sidestep in order to tap into what the student's existing knowledge is and then extend it to the current, whatever the current instructional pedagogical goal is. And I'm viewing this as the same thing that, you know, the Everyone has language. Our students have language in front of us. And so we have to perhaps, if it's not the standard English, that we sidestep, find the phonemes and graphemes they are familiar with, and then we just tweak and adjust it to help um, connect to what they already have. And as that being a more effective way to support them. To wind down the episode, in the article, you're arguing that phonemic awareness and phonics instruction, that they are essential, they are necessary, but you also point that they are insufficient. Can you just elaborate for a second? What do you mean by that? And then just more broadly, how can teachers keep a broader picture of that? Yes, we're doing sounds and individual words and decoding, you know, short words, but the end goal is literacy and the end goal is language and understanding and knowledge building. How can we maintain that balance? So I think The key here is recognizing that word recognition or decoding, that's one very critical component of skilled reading and and spelling and literacy, but it's one component of many. So whether you want to use a framework like the simple view of reading, or you have other theoretical models that guide your practice, if we are recognizing that constructing meaning, reading comprehension, being able to communicate in printed form is really the goal of reading and literacy, then I think that helps us understand that, yes, we definitely need skills in phonological awareness. We need to be teaching phonics and promoting children's abilities to decode words. But that is kind of one cog in the wheel towards this greater goal that we have. Yeah, I completely agree. I was going to say the exact same thing is it is just one piece of the overall puzzle and that we have to make sure in our classrooms as teachers that, you know, I always think of the simple view of reading because it is so simple, but that we have to attend to both sides of that equation and that it is this multiplication equation for a reason, because if we don't give attention to either the decoding side or the language comprehension side, our students aren't going to be as proficient readers as they could potentially be. As we're planning our instruction, we need to make sure that, yes, we have this phonological and phonemic awareness, but we also need to look at the other side and how are we building their background knowledge? How are we building their vocabulary and their comprehension strategies? Even from the very beginning, you know, whether it's listening comprehension in preschool and kindergarten, And then thinking about the older grades, sometimes we focus too much on the comprehension side. How are they helping children with morphology, the decoding aspects for those multisyllabic words? 
the structural analysis, um, all those kinds of things. So I think at every grade, we need to make sure we're attending to both sides, both pieces of the bigger, larger puzzle with comprehension, literate students as the end goal. Thanks to you both, Dr. Shane Piazza and Dr. Alita Hudson, for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Final question for each of you, and maybe we'll start with Dr. Piazza first. Dr. Piazza, what makes a good teacher? That is quite a big question. So (laughs) I am going to narrow that in and bring it down to what we've been talking about today. So I could answer in a number of ways, and I could go really broad with that. But what I'm going to say is that a good teacher is one who has the professional knowledge that allows them to both plan for and differentiate their instruction to best meet the needs of those individual students in their classroom. So good teacher is one who not only has that pedagogical content knowledge, but can really enact that effectively in their classroom because they care about their students' literacy and are doing everything they can to help that student meet their own literacy goals. You're right. That probably is an unfair question (laughs) to ask (laughs) right at the end because, yeah, it's a loaded question. Dr. Hudson, what do you think makes a good teacher? Yes, and I'm actually going to steal my answer from an NWEA publication that just came out in 2022 called Everything You Need to Know About the Science of Reading because I just read it and I highlighted and I circled it. I wrote an amen next to it because I think it just brings everything um, together. And it said, a great teacher is a scientist. They understand the content, they have that knowledge, and they react to the children in their classroom. They take data, they assess their data, they plan future instruction. But not only are they a scientist, they're a special kind of scientist. I'm actually going to read it because, like I said, just said so beautifully. They're a special kind of scientist, a nurturing, garden-growing one out there in the dirt with their tender little sprout. They're caring and creative and responsive. They occasionally sing to their plants even if evidence-based protocol doesn't call for that, because art and science together are what great teachers are made of. And so I just thought that's so true. A great teacher brings the science, but they also have that art of teaching and caring and nurturing personality for their students. Dr. Shane Piasta and Dr. Alita Hudson, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. A big thanks to Dr. Shane Piasta and Dr. Alita Hudson for joining me on the episode and talking about uh, teacher knowledge and then also early phonological awareness and phonics instruction. I just have two quick takeaways for you. My one takeaway is thinking about teacher knowledge. I think everyone would agree that teacher knowledge matters. And what Dr. Hudson mentioned there at the top of the episode was there really is quite a bit more to know around what degree of teacher knowledge matters and how it matters, that we know it matters and we know that it influences student outcomes, but there is more research to be done in that area. And so I think we need to avoid an either-or mentality of two sides of the pendulum swinging back and forth and the fact that teacher knowledge is the only thing that matters. We also need good systems in place, good curriculum in place, good administration of schools. Those things absolutely matter. But we also need to acknowledge that, on the other hand, teacher knowledge matters as well. We know it matters. And if you're a listener of the podcast, I think it's clear that you value teacher knowledge. And so I think to sort of thread the needle with it, it's remembering that teacher knowledge is one piece of the puzzle. 
And that's how the article frames it as. There's a lot of other pieces that matter, but we can't neglect the teacher knowledge component. So when we're providing professional development for teachers, we do need to tell them what good instruction looks like, but we also need to tell them why, and we also need to tell them how that's done. My second big thought here is on phonological awareness instruction, phonics. You know, we've had other episodes where we've talked a bit about the oral-only versus print-only kind of discussion, and I'm not surprised at the approach Dr. Piasta and Dr. Hudson took of saying that it's actually a gradient that matters here, that initially we might only be dealing with sounds, and we might be teaching some quote-unquote lower-level phonological skills, like maybe identifying the number of words in a sentence or counting syllables, but we can also be working on higher-level phonemic skills, perhaps isolating the first sound of a word at the same time. And, And over time, as students are responding to that instruction that we can begin to incorporate print. Similar to my thoughts on, you know, teacher knowledge of we don't want this Goldilocks too hot or too cold, but threading it through the middle and saying there are times when perhaps oral only matters. And there are times when incorporating print with it matters, but that it's going to be a gradient depending on our students' progression and us being responsive to how they are receiving the instruction. That is all I've got for you today. Thank you very much for joining me on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better.